Let's remain standing as we engage in the reading and hearing of God's Word. Turning to you a copy of God's Word this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8, and I'll be reading the entire chapter. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the king, but, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of, the, out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall sol- solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants, and he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we come before you, we confess that we are ignorant and in need of learning. It's for that reason that we are thankful for Christ and his office of prophet, who reveals to us by his word and spirit, your will for our salvation. And so we implore you to give us understanding, to open our hearts and our minds to receive this, your word, and that you would apply it by your spirit to our hearts, that we might live more effectively and more faithfully for you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. At theological conferences, it's uh, very common during the question and answer time uh, for somebody to come up to the microphone and ask the panel that happens to be on stage this question. They'll ask, in your opinion, uh, what is the most dangerous thing plaguing the church today? And on one hand, uh, this is a difficult question to answer because... uh, All sin can be traced back to some common thing, whether it's pride or lust or greed or faithlessness or some other sin. On the other hand, at certain points in uh, the history of the people of God, it, it is easier to pinpoint a certain thing that is plaguing the church, um, perhaps more than the others. So, for example, it could be uh, today spiritual apathy. Well, what would you say if you were asked this question? What is the most dangerous thing plaguing the church today? How would you answer? Well, in 1 Samuel 8, I believe we are at one of those moments where we can look at God's people and say, yes, there is one particular problem that is plaguing these people. And I would posit that this problem is worldliness. In 1 Samuel 8, the the major problem plaguing God's people is worldliness. Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary gives a very helpful definition of what worldliness is. And this is what he says. He says, worldliness is a predominant passion for obtaining the good things of this life. And worldliness, he says, is also covetousness. And most helpfully, he says, worldliness is an addictedness, an addiction to gain and temporal enjoyments. It's a very helpful definition of what worldliness is. And I would add to it just this, uh, in light of this passage, which we're going to study this morning. I would add this, that worldliness is a casting off of the rule and purposes of God and acquiring for oneself and putting oneself under the rule and purposes of the world. It's a casting off of God's rule and putting yourself under the world's rule. Now I'm going to get into into some detail later, but we will see that that's essentially what is happening here in Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel is looking around them at the world And they are saying, we want to be like the world. They say to Samuel, give us a king, twice they say it, give us a king like the nations. They want to be like the world. And so the major theme that I want to unpack for us this morning, and this is your takeaway, is this. Is that only under King Jesus is there true blessing for the people of God. Only under King Jesus is there true blessing for the people of God. Now, there are several, ra- several ways to break up any passage. There are several ways we can break up this passage, but this is the way I'm going to do it. As I was studying this passage, uh, I was struck again by uh, the contrast being made here, the very stark contrast being made between the desires of Israel and the purposes of God. 
In other words, uh, God is setting apart for himself a heavenly people. He's setting apart for himself a holy people. Those were his purposes. But on the other hand, you have Israel's desires. Israel wanted to be like the kingdom of the world. And so there's that contrast there. But there's also another contrast being set up here. And that's the contrast between the king Israel would choose for themselves and the king that God would be for them. And so in light of that, uh, I'm going to use this account to present something of a comparative study between these two contrasts, contrasting the kingdom of the world versus the kingdom of the Lord. And so those are going to be our two major headings this morning. We're going to look at the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of the Lord. And so first, I want to look at this passage from the perspective of what it tells us about the kingdom of the world. And under this heading, I just want to give you three characteristics of what the kingdom of the world is like. And the first is this. The kingdom of the world is inherently rebellious. The kingdom of the world is inherently rebellious. When Israel demanded a king, uh, Samuel was understandably upset. We can see it in the passage here. He went to the Lord and he complained to him. After all, Samuel was uh, God's appointed judge, God's appointed leader of Israel. He was the one who was to decide the difficult issues. He was the one who was to make decisions and to listen to the Lord and to communicate that to Israel. And so it seemed to Samuel that in asking for a king, they were rejecting him. But listen to what God says in verse 7. God tells Samuel in verse 7, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. To Israel, Samuel had messed up by appointing his sons, Joel and Abijah, as judges over Israel. But Samuel is the one whom God had appointed for them. And so, since God is the one who appointed Samuel, if Israel is going to reject Samuel, they're ultimately rejecting God. And that's what God says to Samuel. And the reason is this. It's because it's to the Lord alone that belongs his people's allegiance. God's people's allegiance belongs to the Lord alone, not to any man or any institution. And this teaches us a deeper lesson here, and I'm going to get into this more at the end, but I'll say it here very briefly. There is no neutrality in the world. You either serve God or you serve the world. You either serve God or you serve Satan. You either serve God or you serve yourself. There's no neutrality here. There's no other options. It's a binary choice. You're either for the Lord or you're against him. There's no other options. You either submit to his rule, you either submit to his law and obey it down to the minutest detail, or you are actively casting off his rule. And this teaches us something uh, for our children. And if there are children in the room, I want to say this to you. Insofar as your parents try to raise you in the Lord, you need to submit to them. Because just as Israel 
cast, it, cast off Samuel, and in that sense, cast off the Lord, if you cast off your parents' instruction, if you disobey them, if you don't listen to them, if you don't heed their instructions for you, insofar as it's in obedience to the Lord, you are casting off the Lord for yourself. You're not just casting off your parents, but also their God and your God. The kingdom of the world is inherently rebellious by necessity. But the second thing we see here is that the kingdom of the world, it rules by tyranny. It's not just inherently rebellious, but it rules by tyranny. Samuel was instructed by God to give a truly horrifying description of the king that Israel would choose for themselves. We could walk through the text again, but I just want to emphasize one point here. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, when Hebrews want to emphasize something, they say it repeatedly. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, what are the seraphims who circle the throne of God saying? They are saying, not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. It's emphatic. When Hebrews want to stress something, they say it over and over and over again. Well, the same thing is happening here in this passage, and I'm wondering... If you caught the word that was being repeated and thus emphasized in the passage, well, that word is take. The word is take. It's said uh, around six or seven times. This king that Israel was going to choose for themselves would take their sons and daughters. He would take their best fields and vineyards. He would take a tenth of their grain and of their sheep. He would take their male and female servants for himself. He would take and take and take. Now you may ask, well, what's the big deal here? Uh, Doesn't God take as well? Doesn't he demand things from his people? Doesn't he demand sacrifices? Well, the point is this. is that the king that Israel was going to choose for himself, choose for themselves, was going to take things that was not his to begin with. Everything that God requires of his people is his to begin with. Everything that his people have is only because he gave them. But the king here is going to take things that were not his own and he was going to use them for his own purposes, not for the Lord's. It's the definition of tyranny. It's the misuse of authority. And so this king that Israel was going to choose for themselves would be, in fact, a tyrant. To summarize the passage. Now this is, this is the great irony of worldliness. The world offers so much. The world says, be like us and you'll be truly free. Be yourself. Follow your own heart and you'll be liberated. You'll find true happiness and meaning and joy and purpose and fulfillment. This is what's happened uh, for the past 50, 60 years with the sexual revolution, and it's one of the things that makes it so sad. These people who have exchanged their, the natural and godly use of their bodies for unnatural and ungodly uses, they've been duped into believing that this is the true way to happiness, but in reality, these people have really been twisted. They've had everything taken from them. These are some of the most joyless, unhappy, angry people in the world, deep down. 
And these people just, they keep deteriorating when they're fed this lie and they keep eating this lie. That it's in the world we find happiness and it's through the world's ways we find happiness. And they keep deteriorating and deteriorating until essentially we can see it today in, in all around us in our nation. These people almost cease being human. This is the way of sin, by the way. This isn't just something that's out there. This is the way of sin. All sin does this. All sin is lawlessness. It's casting off of the Lord. It's casting off of his law. And this is what it does. This is the cost every time. Dear Christian, this is the cost every time you cast off the Lord's rule in your life. It's tyrannical. And it leads to destruction. So we've seen that the kingdom of the world is inherently rebellious. It rules by tyranny. And thirdly and finally, the kingdom of the world ends ultimately in disappointment. It ends in disappointment. Look at what God says in verse 18. He says, you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Israel's purpose in having a king, uh, they said in verses 19 to 20, they said, we will have a king over us so that we also may be like all the nations and so that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That was Israel's purpose in having a king, was for protection, was for security, was for prosperity. But think about this. What God had said and done driving out the nations before them, delivering up these people out of the land of Egypt. It was apparently not enough. God had done all these incredible things, leading them not, not once but twice through great bodies of water, through the Red Sea first and then through the Jordan River, conquering the land. It was apparently not enough. Israel wanted something more in a king. Now, what precipitated uh, this asking for a king was, is, was Samuel's sons, who were very foolish and very wicked, very worthless judges. But in reality, Israel's heart was already astray here. It wasn't just that we get to 1 Samuel 8, Israel was perfectly happy, and then Samuel appoints these sons, and Israel just completely changes their mind about God. Israel was already astray here. Samuel just provided the opportunity for them to act on their wicked desires. Israel's heart was already assimilated into the world. Israel's heart was already syncretized with the pagan religions surrounding them in Canaan. But they quickly realized that their plans, their desires backfire in asking for a king. They quickly realized this. They realized that the only people this king that they would choose for themselves would conquer would not be the, the other nations. But Samuel says, this king that you'll choose for yourself is going to conquer you. He's going to take everything you have. He's going to take your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants, your gardens, your vineyards. The only one he's going to conquer is you, not the other nations. Through taking and taking and taking, through enslavement, through enlistment, through taxation, through theft. 
They had hoped to make themselves a king and to profit from his conquering. But the only thing that happened is they chose a king for themselves, or they would choose a king for themselves that would enrich himself, enrich himself on their backs. This worldliness, this, this casting off the rule of the Lord, it's not only rebellion, it's not only tyrannical, it not only takes and takes and sucks the life out of you. It just doesn't work. It ends in disappointment. It just doesn't work. It might seem to work for a time, but in the end it just doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't do what it promises, and it will not do what you want it to do. It ends in disappointment. Now, just so you know, I said this a moment ago, but I want to emphasize this point here. You know, I'm, I'm talking about worldliness, and I've talked about the world out there, but I want to be super clear. I'm not preaching to the world here. I'm preaching to you all. I'm preaching to the church. I want you to remember that these people in 1 Samuel 8 were not pagans. They were God's people. And so we would be amiss. We would be greatly mistaken if for a moment we thought that we were immune to this very thing. If we think that we don't do these very things. In every little thing that you do to cast off the Lord's rule in your life, every little thing, you are saying, I will make me a king to judge me and to rule me. Someone other than the Lord. And so when you skimp on worship attendance, when you capitulate to the ideologies and the fads of the world so that you gain a seat at their table, to look good to them. When you tolerate even the small sins in your life instead of exposing them, this is what you're doing. And whatever thing you do to seek to serve anything or anyone other than the Lord in these ways, you are casting off his rule. And the result is this. Uh, in verse 17, the New King James doesn't translate it strongly enough. It says you will be his servants, but the reality is, is whenever you cast off the rule of the Lord, whatever you submit yourself to, whomever you submit yourself to, verse 17, you will be his slaves. It's slavery. Service to the world is not freedom. Capitulating to the world is not liberation. It's slavery. It ends in disappointment. It's tyrannical and it's rebellious. But that leads us to our second heading where we look in contrast we've looked at the kingdom of the world but I want to draw some implications here from this passage about the kingdom of the Lord by way of contrast the kingdom of the Lord we've set up here as I said just a moment ago a great contrast between uh, willing foolish subservience to the kingdom of the world to its God, to its systems, to its ideas, to its so called wisdom a contrast between that and glorious citizenship in the kingdom of the Lord so that's what I want to look at here for just a moment. Now, uh, the majority of this text is uh, about the king that Israel would choose for themselves. There's not much directly here about the kingdom of God. And so uh, you might be asking how I'm drawing anything about the kingdom of God from here. I'm really doing it by way of inference. And what I mean is this. The way Samuel describes the rule of this king, we can infer 
that the kingdom of the Lord is the exact and polar opposite of the kingdom of the world. And so that's what I'm doing here. It's the exact opposite. Whatever this king, whatever this kingdom would be like, the kingdom of the Lord is the exact opposite. And just as I did with the kingdom of the world, I want to say three particular things about the kingdom of the Lord. And the first is this. The kingdom of the Lord is founded upon grace. It's founded upon grace. When Samuel complained and prayed early on in the passage, the Lord said again in verses 7 and 8, he said, Israel has not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And here's what he goes on to say. He says, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. And so the Lord's saying that they are rejecting my grace that I exhibited to them and bringing them up out of the land of Egypt. And this, this is the great irony about what Israel is doing here. The only reason that Israel is even in the position to ask for a king is only because the Lord brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Their ability to even ask for this thing is because of the Lord and his grace. And so they were spitting in God's face. They were trampling his grace. And here you see not just the insanity, but, but really the sheer stupidity of worldliness. The sheer stupidity of rebellion. The world and, and Satan and, and the world's systems, they take their kingdom by force, by seizure. But the Lord establishes his kingdom through redeeming grace. Now, for those who might still object and say, well, again, the Lord takes as well. He takes things. He demands sacrifice. He requires service. He demands allegiance of his people. But here again is the difference. And it's a big difference. The difference is this. God requires what he gave in the first place. And that graciously and so, for example, consider the Lord's Day. Consider uh, the public worship that God requires of us. God gives us seven days, and he asks only one to worship him in the congregation of God's people and to honor him. The Lord made every day and they are all his by right. But he says, I'm giving you six days for your own recreations and employments. The God of this world and this world's systems and wisdom and ideologies and religions, they just take and take and take and take. They never give. They can never give to begin with because they have nothing. The world requires all of you, every day, your family, your life, even your very soul. And the thing is, is that's still not enough for the world. 
like the fire and, and the grave that never says enough. The world never says enough. It will just take and take and never give. But in the Lord's economy and in his kingdom, he has accomplished everything in his son. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's, he's given us everything. Everything we owe to him, everything he requires because of our sin. Jesus Christ, the one he has set up as king on his holy mountain, as Psalm 2 tells us. Jesus Christ has paid for it all. The obedience that we owe the Lord, he's paid for it all. The sin that we've committed against him, he's paid for it all. He's given all of himself for us, for his people. And so we can give to him, not out of fear, not out of slavery, but out of gratitude and love because of what he has given us in the first place. So the kingdom of the Lord is founded upon grace. But secondly, the kingdom of the Lord is ruled in righteousness. It's ruled in and by righteousness. When we read uh, this description of this king that Israel would choose for themselves here, we get the sense that everything he does is just kind of on a whim. It's just whatever his pleasures determine is good for him at the moment, that's just, he's just going to take it and it's just going to be his. Whatever his lusts drive him to do, that's what he's going to do. If he needs an army, he's going to take your sons. If he wants wine for his parties, he's just going to take your vineyards. If he wants bread for his table, he's just going to take your fields and use them for himself. In other words, this king will be unrighteous, ungodly, untrustworthy. Again, he's a tyrant. The world is a tyrant. Sin and Satan are tyrants. They just take what they want. But the kingdom of God is ruled in and by absolute righteousness. It's governed by a law whose standards are unwaveringly and absolutely perfect. In all matters, eternally good. Why? Because the lawgiver himself, the one who gave the law, is himself eternally, absolutely, and perfectly good. And that's, that's one of the Christian, or one of the, one of the blessings of being a Christian is not having to wonder, I think I may have said this last time, is not having to wonder day by day what our king requires of us. He's revealed it to us in his word. Now for the world, the standards change every day, don't they? We've seen this year after year after year. We see it in politics. One day, this is taboo. The next day, that's taboo. The world standards change. But with God, his word is forever settled in the heavens. Never changing, never to be altered. Always the same. The law of, of this kingdom does not shift with the winds of society and culture, but are forever anchored in the eternal goodness of the Lord himself. And so the kingdom of the Lord is ruled in righteousness. 
But lastly, and most importantly, we've seen that the kingdom of the Lord is founded upon grace, it's ruled in righteousness. But most importantly, we see that in the kingdom of the Lord, the king is good. The king is good. The reality is, is that God uh, had in mind, even at this time, he had in mind a king for Israel. But it's not who they thought or who they wanted. Even through this, this treachery, even through this great sin and casting off the rule of the Lord, God himself was set up an eternal throne for his king to rule. And he was already working toward that end here. And that king, as we know, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the king toward whom all the kings of Israel point. And that king, the Lord Jesus Christ, sits on the throne now. He sits on that eternal throne, the throne of David at God's right hand. And he has, he has been proclaimed to be the son of God in power by his resurrection. And he's been installed, again, as Psalm 2 tells us, on Zion, on God's holy mountain. And it's here that we really see the biggest contrast between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. It's in their king. And so as we close this sermon here this morning, I just want to go through uh, somewhat briefly and just point out four ways that Christ is a better king than the kings that the world offers and the ways and the systems that the world offers. Four ways that Christ is better. The first way is this. Christ knows his people. Christ the king knows his people. The king that Israel would choose for themselves, uh, described here in 1 Samuel 8, did not know the people, much less care for them. He didn't know them. For him, uh, the people were just a means of gain, a means of wealth and comfort and nothing else but Jesus Christ the king of his people the lord and king of the church knows every one of his people by name knows everything about them and cares deeply for them and he calls them his own he takes ownership of them He knows his people. The second thing is this. He communes with his people. Christ communes with his people. He not only knows them, but he communes with his people. The world uh, will keep its distance. It'll use you, for sure. It'll take what you have. It'll twist you into an unrecognizable mass. But it'll still keep its distance. It will approach, but only to use. Christ actually condescends to his people. And he condescends in gentleness. And not only this, he doesn't just, just stand with the people, but he delights in doing so. He doesn't do it because he has to. He doesn't do it because somebody told him to. He does it because he himself delights in being with his people and communing with him. And so I ask you, what... What worldly king is, is like this? 
What part of the world is like this? And consider this. Not only does Christ commune with his people, but the Bible tells us he calls them his friends. Not just his subjects, but his friends. The ones whom he loves. He knows his people. He communes with his people. He serves his people. Again, the world takes and takes and takes and the world lords it over the people. But Christ says in Matthew 20, 28, he says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself and to give of his life as a ransom for many. And that brings us to the last thing, the last thing that makes Christ so much better than anything the world has to offer. He knows his people, he communes with his people, he serves his people, but lastly, he died for his people. He died for them. The world, make no mistake, the world dies for no one. The world dies for no one. It sacrifices itself, it gives of itself for no one. Not you, not me, not even its own people. The only thing the world does is it itself dies. And as it's dying, it drags as many people as it can right along with it. Even the kings of this world, even the the greatest men, consider the presidents and the kings that this world has had, the governors, none of them would die for their people. And even if they did, even if they did die for their people, they couldn't die for their sins. They couldn't die in their place. But that's exactly what Jesus did. What king in there, what ruler is there in all of history who died for his people in this way? There isn't one. Whatever you think the world can offer, whatever you think you can gain by the ways of the world, the message is here is that God's king The Lord Jesus Christ is so much better. And so I want to close with two admonitions this morning. And the first is this. It's a point I brought up earlier, but I want to emphasize here at the end. Everyone, all of you, me, everybody out in the world, everyone has a king. Everyone has a king. Again, there's no neutrality. You serve someone. And if you're given over to the world, if you're given over to sin, if you're given over to Satan, if you, had not, if you have not actively bowed the knee to Christ and confessed him as Lord and lived as if he is Lord, if you have not received him by faith and been justified, forgiven of your sins, then the call to you here this morning is to go to him in faith. He has promised never to cast out anyone who approaches him. Again, what what king in all the earth is a king like that who says, come to me, all who are lowly and worthless and cast aside and burdened with sins, come to me and I I will never cast you out. The call is to come to him. And be forgiven of your sins and confess him as Lord.
But finally, I want to leave you with this. No matter who you are in here, no matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the call to you is to choose very, very carefully whom you will serve. Choose very carefully. And if you have Christ as your king, if he has subdued you to himself, as our catechism says, then don't resist his rule. Cherish it. Love it. Renew your allegiance to him daily. Because King Jesus is better than anything, anything this dying world has to offer. And that is the truth. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his gracious, sovereign, masterful rule over the world and that special rule and care he has for his church. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us willing, obedient, loving, faithful servants. We know that there is nothing in us that caused you to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your dear son. But it's all of grace. We pray, Lord, that you would emphasize in our hearts by your spirit the greatness and the magnitude of this grace and that we would be renewed in our faith in Christ and that we would uh, live accordingly in obedience to his word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.